You have found Short Stories Podcast, a production of adventuresinaudio.net. Welcome, I'm Robert Crandall, coming to you from the Adventures in Audio Asylum, where strange things sometimes happen, and horror stories are the main thing. I'm so glad you have decided to listen to this podcast. On the previous episode, I mentioned that TJ wrote in saying his podcast provider had lost all his stuff. Playlist, I guess, and subscriptions, etc. And um, wondered if they had taken my show down. And I checked and they had not. And he wrote back and said it was a mistake. They made a mistake. Everything is put back together and everything's all right. So I just want to remind you again that if you can't find this podcast where you normally do, it is on our website, adventuresinaudio.net. But adventuresinaudio.net will not be on any of the platforms or apps. Short stories will. So that's what you can do there, I don't know. They're taking down episode or uh, podcasts nowadays. As I mentioned in the previous episode, a lot of times it's because podcasters are using music they don't have, copyrighted music they don't have the right to use. But there's other things now that they're taking down some podcasts for. So I don't know why they would ever think of taking this down or not doing politics or current events or anything really controversial and all that. So, but you never know. And like I say, if you can't find it, check the website, adventuresnaudio.net, and it should be there. Also on our website, you'll find a poem cast, which you'll find uh, poems by Emily Dickinson, Carl Sandburg, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. On Edgar Allan Poe, I've done Annabelle Lee, A Dream Within a Dream, and Alone. Edgar Allan Poe hated being alone. So that's a poem you might want to check out. It's pretty chilling, really. Our feature story for this episode is a chilling story by Edgar Allan Poe. In this story, a man falls in love with a wonderful woman who dies. He then remarries, but things don't go well. I hope you enjoy Legia by Edgar Allan Poe. And the will therein lieth, which dieth not. Who knoweth the mystery of the will with its vigor? For God is but a great will pervading all things by nature of its intentness. Man doth not yield himself to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. Joseph Glanville I cannot for my soul remember how, when, or even precisely where, I first became acquainted with the Lady Legia. Long years have since elapsed, and my memory is feeble through much suffering. 
or perhaps I cannot now bring these points to mind because, in truth, the character of my beloved, her rare learning, her singular yet placid cast of beauty, and the thrilling and enthralling elegance of her low musical language made their way into my heart by paces so steadily and stealthily progressive that they have been unnoticed and unknown. Yet I believe that I met her first and most frequently in some large, old, decaying city near the Rhine. Of her family I have surely heard her speak. That it is of a remotely ancient date cannot be doubted. Lygia, Lygia, buried in studies of a nature more than all else adapted to deaden impressions of the outward world. That it is by that sweet word alone, by Legia, that I bring before mine eyes in fancy the image of her who is no more. And now, while I write, a recollection flashes upon me that I never known the paternal name of her who was my friend and my betrothed, and who became the partner of my studies, and finally the wife of my bosom. Was it a playful charge on the part of Legia, or was it a test of my strength of affection, that I should institute no inquiries upon this point? Or was it rather a caprice of my own, a wildly romantic offering on the shrine of the most passionate devotion. I but instinctively recall the fact itself. What wonder that I have utterly forgotten the circumstances which originated or attended it. And indeed, if ever that spirit which is entitled romance, if ever she, the wan, misty-winged astrophet of idolatrous Egypt, presided as they tell over marriages ill-omened, then most surely she presided over mine. There is one dear topic, however, on which my memory fails me not. It is the person of Legia. In stature she was tall, somewhat slender, and in her latter days even emaciated. I would in vain attempt to portray the majesty, the quiet ease of her demeanor, or the incomprehensible lightness and elasticity of her footfall. She came and departed as a shadow. I was never made aware of her entrance into my closed study, save by the dear music of her low, sweet voice, as she placed her marble hand upon my shoulder. In beauty of face, no maiden ever equaled her. It was the radiance of an opium dream, an airy and spirit-lifting vision more widely divine than the fantasies which hovered about the slumbering souls of the daughters of Delos. Yet her features were not of that regular mold which we have been falsely taught to worship in the classical labors of the heathen. There is no exquisite beauty, says Bacon. Lord Virulam, speaking truly of all the forms and genera of beauty, without some strangeness in the proportion. Yet, although I saw the features of Legia were not of a classic regularity, 
although I perceived that her loveliness was indeed exquisite, and felt that there was much of strangeness pervading it, yet I have tried in vain to detect the irregularity, and to trace home my own perception of the strange. I examined the contour of the lofty and pale forehead. It was faultless. How cold indeed that word, when applied to a majesty so divine, the skin rivaling the purest ivory, the commanding extent and repose, the gentle prominence of the regions above the temples, and then the raven black, the glossy, the luxuriant, and naturally curling tresses, setting forth the full force of the Homeric epithet Hyacinthin. I looked at the delicate outlines of the nose, and nowhere but in the graceful medallions of the Hebrews had I beheld a similar perfection. There were the same luxurious smoothness of surface, the same scarcely perceptible tendency to the aquiline, the same harmoniously curved nostrils speaking the free spirit. I regarded the sweet mouth. Here was indeed the triumph of all things heavenly, the magnificent turn of the short upper lip, the soft voluptuous slumber of the under, the dimples which sported, and the color which spoke, the teeth glancing back with a brilliancy almost startling. Every ray of the holy light which fell upon them in her serene and placid yet most exultantly radiant of all smiles. I scrutinized the formation of the chin, and here, too, I found the gentleness of breadth, the softness and the majesty, the fullness and the spirituality of the Greek, the contour which the god Apollo revealed, but in a dream to Cleomenes, the son of the Athenian. And then I peered into the large eyes of Legia. For eyes, we have no models in the remotely antique. It might have been, too, that in these eyes of my beloved lie the secret of which Lord Verulam alludes. They were, I must believe, far larger than the ordinary eyes of our own race. They were even fuller than the fullest of the gazelle eyes of the tribe of the valley of Norjahad. Yet it was only at intervals and moments of intense excitement that this peculiarity became more than slightly noticeable in Legia. And at such moments was her beauty, in my heated fancy, thus it appeared perhaps, the beauty of beings either above or apart from the earth, the beauty of the fabulous hoary of the Turk, the hue of the orbs was the most brilliant of black, and far over them hung jetty lashes of great length. The brows, slightly irregular in outline, had the same tint. The strangeness, however, which I found in the eyes was of a nature distinct from the formation, or the color, or the brilliancy of the features, and must, after all, be referred to the expression. Ah, word of no meaning. 
behind whose vast latitude of mere sound we entrench our ignorance of so much of the spiritual, the expression of the eyes of Legia. How for long hours I have pondered upon it. How have I, through the whole of a midsummer night, struggled to fathom it? What was it? that something more profound than the well of Democritus, which lay far within the pupils of my beloved. What was it? I was possessed with a passion to discover. Those eyes, those large, those shining, those divine orbs, they became to me twin stars of Leda, and I to them the devoutest of astrologers." There is no point among the many incomprehensible anomalies of the science of mind more thrillingly exciting than the fact never, I believe, noticed in the schools than in our endeavors to recall to memory something long forgotten. We often find ourselves upon the very verge of remembrance without being able in the end to remember. And thus how frequently in my intense scrutiny of Legia's eyes have I felt approaching the full knowledge of their expression, felt it approaching, yet not quite be mine, and so at length entirely depart. And strange, O strangest mystery of all, I found in the commonest objects of the universe a circle of analogies to that expression. I mean to say that Subsequently to the period when Legia's beauty passed into my spirit, their dwelling as in a shrine, I derived from many existences in the material world a sentiment such as I felt always around, within me, by her large and luminous orbs. Yet not the more could I define that sentiment or analyze or even steadily view it. I recognized it. Let me repeat, sometimes in the survey of a rapidly growing vine, in the contemplation of a moth, a butterfly, a chrysalis, a stream of running water, I have felt it in the ocean, in the falling of a meteor. I have felt it in the glances of unusually aged people. And there are one or two stars in heaven one especially, a star of the sixth magnitude, double and changeable, to be found near the large star of Lyra, in a telescopic scrutiny of which I had been made aware of the feeling. I had been filled with it by certain sounds from stringed instruments, and not unfrequently by passages from books. Among innumerable other instances, I well remember something in a volume of Joseph Glanville, which, perhaps merely from its quaintness, who shall say, never failed to inspire me with the sentiment, and the will there lieth, which dieth not. Who knoweth the mysteries of the will with its vigor? For God is but a great will, pervading all things by nature of its intentness. Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. Length of years and subsequent reflection 
have enabled me to trace, indeed, some remote connection between this passage in the English moralist and a portion of the character of Legia. An intensity in thought, action, or speech was possibly in her a result, or at least an index, of that gigantic volition which during our long intercourse failed to give other and more immediate evidence of its existence. Of all the women whom I have ever known, she, the outwardly calm, the ever-placid Legia, was the most violently a prey to the tumultuous vultures of stern passion, and of such passion I could form no estimate, save by the miraculous expansion of those eyes, which at once so delighted and appalled me, by the almost magical melody, modulation, distinctness, and placidity of her very low voice, and by the fierce energy, rendered doubly affected by the contrast with her manner of utterance, of the wild words which she habitually uttered. I have spoken of the learning of Legia. It was immense, such as I have never known in women. In the classical tongues she was deeply proficient, and as far as my own acquaintance extended in regard to the modern dialects of Europe, I have never known her at fault. Indeed, upon any theme of the most admired, because simply the most abstruse, of the boasted erudition of the Academy, have I ever found Legia at fault. How singularly, how thrilling, this one point in the nature of my wife had forced itself, at this late period only, upon my attention. I said her knowledge was such as I have never known in woman. But where breathes the man who has traversed, and successfully, all the wide areas of moral, physical, and mathematical science? I saw not then what I now clearly perceive, that the acquisitions of Legia were gigantic, were astounding, yet I was sufficiently aware of her infinite supremacy to resign myself with a childlike confidence." to her guidance through the chaotic world of metaphysical investigation at which I was most busily occupied during the early years of our marriage. With how vast a triumph, with how vivid a delight, with how much of all that is ethereal in hope did I feel, as she bent over me in studies but little sought, but less known, that delicious vista by slow degrees expanding before me, now whose long, gorgeous, and all-untrodden path I might at length pass onward to the goal of a wisdom too divinely precious not to be forbidden. How poignant, then, must have been the grief with which, after some years, I beheld my well-grounded expectations take wings to themselves and fly away. Without Legia, I was but as a child groping benighted. Her presence, her readings alone, rendered vividly luminous with many mysteries of the transcendentalism in which we were immersed, wanting the radiant lusters of her eyes. Letters lambent and golden grew duller than satyrian lead, 
and now those eyes shone less and less frequently upon the pages over which I poured. Ligia grew ill. The wild eyes blazed with a too, too glorious effulgence. The pale fingers became of the transparent waxen hue of the grave, and the blue veins upon the lofty forehead swelled and sank impetuously with the tides of the most gentle emotion. I saw that she must die, and I struggled desperately in spirit with the grim Azrael, and the struggles of the passionate wife were, to my astonishment, even more energetic than my own. There had been much in her stern nature to impress me with the belief that to her death would have come without its terrors, but not so. Words are important to convey any just idea of the fierceness of resistance with which she wrestled with the shadow. I groaned in anguish at the pitiable spectacle. I would have soothed. I would have reasoned. But in the intensity of her wild desire for life, for life, but for life, solace and reason were alike the utmost of folly. Yet not until the last instance, amid the most conclusive writhings of her fierce spirit, was shaken the external placidity of her demeanor. Her voice grew more gentle, grew more low. Yet I would not wish to dwell upon the wild meaning of the quietly uttered words. My brain reeled as I hearkened, entranced to a melody more than mortal to assumptions and aspirations which mortality had never before known. That she loved me, I should not have doubted, and I might have been easily aware that in a bosom such as hers, love would have reigned no ordinary passion. But in death only was I fully impressed with the strength of her affection. For long hours detaining my hand, would she pour out before me the overflowing of a heart whose more than passionate devotion amounted to idolatry. How had I deserved to be so blessed by such confessions? How had I deserved to be so cursed with the removal of my beloved in the hour of my making them? But upon this subject I cannot bear to dilate. Let me say only that in Legia's more than womanly abandonment to a love, alas, all unmerited, all unworthily bestowed, I at length recognized the principle of her longing with so wildly earnest a desire for the life which was now fleeing so rapidly away. It is this wild longing, it is this eager vehemence of desire for life, but for life that I have no power to portray, no utterance capable of expressing. At high noon of the night in which she departed, beckoning me peremptorily to her side, she bade me repeat certain verses composed by herself not many days before. I obeyed her. They were these. Lo, tis a gala night, Within the lonesome latter years, an angel throng be winged and be dight, in veils and drowned in tears. 
sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes in the form of God on high mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly, mere puppets they who come and go, a bidding of vast, formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, flapping from out their condor wings, invisible woe. That motley drama, oh, be sure, it shall not be forgot, with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not. Through a circle that ever returneth into the self-same spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror, the soul of the plot. But see amid the mimic rout a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and the seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man, and its hero, the conqueror worm. Oh, God! half shrieked Legia, leaping to her feet and extending her arms aloft with a spasmodic movement as I made an end of these lines. Oh, God! Oh, divine Father! Shall these things be undeviatingly so? Shall this conqueror be not once conquered? Are we not part and parcel in thee? Who, who knoweth the mysteries of the will with its vigor? Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor until death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. And now, as if exhausted with emotion, she suffered her white arms to fall and returned solemnly to her bed of death. And as she breathed her last sighs, there came mingled with them a low murmur from her lips. I bent to them my ear, and distinguished again the concluding words of the passage of Glanville. Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. She died, and I, crushed into the very dust with sorrow, could no longer endure the lonely desolation of my dwelling in the dim and decaying city by the Rhine. I had no lack of what the world calls wealth. Legia had brought me far more, very far more, than ordinarily falls to the lot of mortals. After a few months, therefore, of weary, aimless wandering, I purchased and put in some repair an abbey which I shall not name, and one of the wildest and least frequented portions of fair England. 
the gloomy and dreary grandeur of the building, the almost savage aspect of the domain, the many melancholy and time-honored memories connected with both, had much in unison with the feelings of utter abandonment which had driven me into that remote, unsocial region of the country. Yet although the external abbey, with its verdant decay hanging about it, suffered but little alteration, I gave way with a childlike perversity and perchance with a faint hope of alleviating my sorrows to a display of more than regal magnificence within. For such follies, even in childhood, I had imbibed a taste and now they came back to me as if in the dotage of grief. Alas, I feel how much even of incipient madness might have been discovered in the gorgeous and fantastic draperies, in the solemn carvings of Egypt, in the wild cornices and furniture, in the bedlam patterns of the carpets of tufted gold. I had become a bounded slave in the trammels of opium, and my labors and my orders had taken a coloring from my dreams. But these absurdities I must not pause to detail. Let me speak only of that one chamber ever accursed, whether in a moment of mental alienation I led from the altar as my bride, as the successor of the unforgotten Legia, the fair-haired, and blue-eyed Lady Rowena Trevanian of Tremaine. There is no individual portion of the architecture and decoration of that bridal chamber which is not visibly before me. Where were the souls of the haughty family of the bride, when through thirst of gold they permitted to pass the threshold of an apartment so bedecked, a maiden and a daughter so beloved, I have said that I minutely remember the details of the chamber, yet I am sadly forgetful on the topics of deep moment, and here there was no system, no keeping in the fantastic display to take hold upon the memory. The room lay in a high turret of the castellated abbey, was pentagonal in shape, and of capacious size. Occupying the whole southern face of the pentagonal was the sole window, an immense sheet of unbroken glass from Venice, a single pane, and tinted of a leaden hue, so that the rays of either the sun or moon passing through it fell with a ghastly luster on the objects within. Over the upper portion of this huge window, extended the trellis work of an aged vine, which clambered up the massy walls of the turret. The ceiling of gloomy-looking oak was excessively lofty, vaulted, and elaborately fretted with the wildest and most grotesque specimens of a semi-Gothic, semi-Druidical device. From out of the most central recess of this melancholy vaulting, depended by a single chain of gold with long links, a huge censer of the same metal, Saracenic in pattern, and with many perforations so contrived that there writhed in and out of them 
as if endued with a serpent vitality, a continual succession of party-colored fires. Some few Ottomans and golden candelabra of eastern figure were in various stations about, and there was the couch, too, the bridal couch of an Indian model, and low and sculptured of solid ebony, with a pall-like canopy above. In each of the angles of the chamber stood on end a gigantic sarcophagus of black granite from the tombs of the kings over against Luxor, with their aged lids full of immemorial sculpture. But in the draping of the apartment lay at last the chief fantasy of all, the lofty walls, gigantic in height, even unproportionably so, were hung from summit to foot in vast folds with a heavy and massive-looking tapestry, tapestry of a material which was found alike as a carpet on the floor, as a covering for the ottomans and the ebony bed, as a canopy for the bed, and as the gorgeous volutes of the curtains which partially shaded the window. The material was the richest cloth of gold. It was spotted all over at irregular intervals with arabesque figures, about a foot in diameter, and wrought upon the cloth in patterns of the most jetty black. But these figures partook of the true character of the arabesque only when regarded from a single point of view. By a contrivance now common, and indeed traceable to a very remote period of antiquity, they were made changeable in aspect. To one entering the room they bore the appearance of simple monstrosities. But upon further advance, this appearance gradually departed, and step by step, as the visitor moved his station in the chamber, he saw himself surrounded by an endless succession of ghastly forms which belong to the superstition of the Norman, or arise in the guilty slumbers of the monk. The phantasmagoric effect was vastly heightened by the artificial introduction of a strong continual current of wind behind the draperies, giving a hideous and uneasy animation to the whole. In halls such as these, in a bridal chamber such as this, I passed, with the Lady of Tremaine, the unhallowed hours of the first month of our marriage, passed them with but little disquietude, that my wife dreaded the fierce moodiness of my temper, that she shunned me, and loved me but little, I could not help perceiving, but it gave me rather pleasure than otherwise. I loathed her, with a hatred belonging more to demon than to man. My memory flew back, oh, with what intensity of regret, to Legia, the beloved, the august, the beautiful, the entombed. I reveled in recollections of her purity, of her wisdom, of her lofty, of her ethereal nature, of her passionate, her idolatrous love. Now then, did my spirit fully and freely burn 
with more than all the fires of her own. In the excitement of my opium dreams, for I was habitually fettered in the shackles of the drug, I would call aloud upon her name during the silence of the night or among the sheltered recesses of the glens by day, as if through the wild eagerness, the solemn passion, the consuming ardor of my longing for the departed, I could restore her to the pathways she had abandoned. Ah, could it be forever upon the earth? About the commencement of the second month of marriage, the Lady Rowena was attacked with sudden illness, from which her recovery was slow. The fever which consumed her rendered her nights uneasy, and in her perturbed state of half-slumber she spoke of sounds and of motions in and about the chamber of the turret, which I concluded had no origin save the distemper of her fancy, or perhaps in the phantasmagoric influences of the chamber itself. She became at length convalescent, finally well. Yet but a second more violent disorder again threw her upon a bed of suffering, and from this attack her frame at all times feeble, never altogether recovered. Her illnesses were, after this epoch, of alarming character and of more alarming recurrence, defying alike the knowledge and the great exertions of her physicians. With the increase of chronic disease, which had thus apparently taken too sure hold upon her constitution to be eradicated by human means, I could not fail to observe a similar increase in the nervous irritation of her temperament, and in her excitability by trivial causes of fear. She spoke again, and now more frequently and pertinaciously, of the sounds, of the slight sounds, and of the unusual motions among the tapestries to which she had formerly alluded. One night, near the closing in of September, she pressed this distressing subject with more than usual emphasis upon my attention. She had just awakened from an unquiet slumber, and I had been watching, with feelings half of anxiety, half of vague terror, the workings of her emaciated countenance. I sat by the side of her ebony bed, upon one of the ottomans of India. She partly arose and spoke in an earnest low whisper of sounds which she had then heard, but which I could not hear, of motions which she then saw, but which I could not perceive. The wind was rushing hurriedly behind the tapestries, and I wished to show her what, let me confess it, I could not all believe, that those almost inarticulate breathings and those very gentle variations of the figures upon the wall were but the natural effects of that customary rushing of the wind. But a deadly pallor overspread her face and proved to me that my exertions to reassure her would be fruitless. She appeared to be fainting, and no attendants were within call. I remembered where was deposited a decanter of light wine, which had been ordered by her physicians, and hastened across the chamber to procure it. But as I stepped beneath the light of the censer, 
two circumstances of a startling nature attracted my attention. I had felt that some palpable, although invisible, object had passed lightly by my person, and I saw that there lay upon the golden carpet in the very middle of the rich luster thrown from the censer, a shadow, a faint, indefinite shadow of angelic aspect, such as might be fancied for the shadow of a shade. But I was wild with the excitement of an immoderate dose of opium, and heeded these things but little, nor spoke of them to Rowena, Having found the wine, I recrossed the chamber and poured out a goblet full, which I held to the lips of the fainting lady. She had now partially recovered, however, and took the vessel herself, while I sank upon an ottoman near me, with my eyes fastened upon her person. It was then that I became distinctly aware of a gentle footfall upon the carpet, and near the couch, and in a second thereafter, as Rowena was in the act of raising the wine to her lips, I saw, or may have dreamed that I saw, fall within the goblet, as if from some invisible spring in the atmosphere of the room, three or four large drops of brilliant and ruby-colored fluid. If this I saw, not so Rowena. She swallowed the wine unhesitatingly, and I forbore to speak to her of a circumstance which must, after all, I considered have been the suggestion of a vivid imagination, rendered morbidly active by the terror of the lady, by the opium, and by the hour. Yet I cannot conceal it from my own perception that immediately subsequent to the fall of the ruby drops, a rapid change for the worst took place in the disorder of my wife, so that on the third subsequent night the hands of her menials prepared her for the tomb, and on the fourth I sat alone with her shrouded body in that fantastic chamber which had received her as my bride. Wild visions, opium engendered, flitted shadow-like before me. I gazed with unquiet eye upon the sarcophagi, in the angles of the room, upon the varying figures of the drapery, and upon the writhing of the party-colored fires in the censer overhead. My eyes then fell, as I called to mind the circumstances of a former night, to the spot beneath the glare of the censer, where I had seen the faint traces of the shadow. It was there, however, no longer, and breathing with greater freedom, I turned my glances to the pallid and rigid figure upon the bed. Then rushed upon me a thousand memories of Legia, and then came back upon my heart with the turbulent violence of a flood the whole of the unutterable woe with which I had regarded her thus enshrouded. The night waned, and still with a bosom full of bitter thoughts of the one only and supremely beloved, I remained gazing upon the body of Rowena. It might have been midnight, or perhaps earlier or later, for I had taken no note of time when a sob, low, gentle, but very distinct, 
startled me from my reverie. I felt that it came from the bed of ebony, the bed of death. I listened in an agony of superstitious terror, but there was no repetition of the sound. I strained my vision to detect any motion of the corpse, but there was not the slightest perceptible. Yet I could not have been deceived. I had heard the noise, however faint, and my soul was awakened within. I resolutely and perseveringly kept my attention riveted upon the body. Many minutes elapsed before any circumstance occurred tending to throw light upon the mystery. At length it became evident that a slight, a very feeble and barely noticeable tinge of color had flushed up within the cheeks and along the sunken small veins of the eyelids. Through a species of unutterable horror, and awe for which the language of mortality has no sufficient energetic expression. I felt my heart cease to beat. My limbs grew rigid where I sat. Yet a sense of duty finally operated to restore my self-possession. I could no longer doubt that we had been precipitate in our preparations, that Rowena still lived. It was necessary that some immediate exertion be made, yet the turret was altogether apart from the portion of the abbey tenanted by the servants. There were none within call. I had no means of summoning them to my aid without leaving the room for many minutes, and this I could not venture to do. I therefore struggled alone in my endeavors to call back the spirit still hovering. In a short period it was certain, however, that a relapse had taken place. The color disappeared from both eyelid and cheek, leaving a wanness even more than that of marble. The lips became doubly shriveled and pinched up in the ghastly expression of death. A repulsive clamminess and coldness overspread rapidly the surface of the body, and all the usual rigorous stiffness immediately supervened. I fell back in a shudder upon the couch from which I had been so startlingly aroused, and again gave myself up to the passionate waking visions of Legia. An hour thus elapsed when, could it be possible, I was a second time aware of some vague sound issuing from the region of the bed. I listened, in extremity of horror, the sound came again. It was a sigh. Rushing to the corpse, I saw, distinctly saw, a tremor upon the lips. In a minute afterward they relaxed, disclosing a bright line of the pearly teeth. Amazement now struggled in my bosom with the profound awe, which had hitherto reigned there alone. I felt that my vision grew dim, that my reason wandered, and it was only by a violent effort that at length I succeeded in nerving myself to the task which duty thus once more pointed out. There was now a partial glow upon the forehead and upon the cheek and throat. A perceptible warmth pervaded the whole frame. There was even a slight pulsation of the heart. The lady lived. 
and with redoubled ardor I betook myself to the task of restoration. I chafed and bathed the temples and the hands and used every exertion which experience and no little medical reading could suggest. But in vain, suddenly the color fled, the pulsation ceased, the lips resumed the expression of the dead, and in an instant afterward the whole body took upon itself the icy chilliness, the livid hue, the intense rigidity, the sunken outline, and all the lonesome peculiarities of that which had been for many days a tenant of the tomb. And again I sunk into visions of Legia, and again what marvel that I shudder while I write. Again, there reached my ears a low sob from the region of the ebony bed. But why shall I minutely detail the unspeakable horrors of that night? Why shall I pause to relate how time after time, until near the period of the gray dawn, this hideous drama of revivification was repeated? how each terrific relapse was only into a sterner and apparently more irredeemable death, how each agony wore the aspect of a struggle with some invisible foe, and how each struggle was succeeded by I know not what of wild change in the personal appearance of the corpse. Let me hurry to a conclusion. The greater part of the fearful night had worn away and she who had been dead once again stirred, and now more vigorously than hitherto, although arousing from a dissolution more appalling in its utter hopelessness than any. I had long ceased to struggle or to move, and remained sitting rigidly upon the ottoman, a helpless prey to a whirl of violent emotions of which extreme awe was perhaps the least terrible and the least consuming. The corpse, I repeat, stirred, and now, more vigorously than before, the hues of life flushed up with unwanted energy into the continents, the limbs relaxed, and save that the eyelids were yet pressed heavily together, and that the bandages and draperies of the grave still imparted their charnel character to the figure, I might have dreamed that Rowena had indeed shaken off utterly the fetters of death. But if this idea was not, even then, altogether adopted, I could at least doubt no longer, when arising from the bed, tottering with feeble steps, with closed eyes, and with that manner of one bewildered in a dream, the thing that was enshrouded advanced boldly and palpably into the middle of the apartment. I trembled not, I stirred not, for a crowd of unutterable fancies connected with the air, the stature, the demeanor of the figure rushing hurriedly through my brain had paralyzed, had chilled me into stone. I stirred not, but gazed upon the apparition. There was a mad disorder in my thoughts, a tumult unappeasable. Could it indeed be the living Rowena who confronted me? Could it indeed be Rowena at all, 
the fair-haired, the blue-eyed Lady Rowena Trevanian of Tremaine? Why? Why should I doubt it? The bandage lay heavily about the mouth, but then might it not be the mouth of the breathing Lady of Tremaine? And the cheeks. There were the roses as in her noon of life. Yes, these might indeed be the fair cheeks of the living Lady of Tremaine. And the chin, with its dimples, as in health, might it not be hers? But had she then grown taller since her malady? What inexpressible madness seized me with that thought? One bound, and I reached her feet. Shrinking from my touch, she let fall from her head, unloosened the ghastly cerements which had confined it, and there streamed forth into the rushing atmosphere of the chamber huge masses of long and disheveled hair, and it was blacker than the raven wings of midnight. And now slowly opened the eyes of the figure which stood before me. Here then, at least, I shrieked aloud. Can I never, can I never be mistaken? These are the full and the black and the wild eyes of my lost love, of the lady, of the lady Legia. You've been listening to Legia by Edgar Allan Poe, who once said, I became insane with long intervals of horrible sanity. If you enjoyed the episode, why not listen to another? There's over a hundred to choose from. I've enjoyed being with you, and now I must go. But I hope to be with you again soon. Please be well, and thank you for listening to me.